it is a real privilege to be with you tonight. And I don't come with any tricky, trendy, or cool sermon for you, really just a Bible study on a Sunday night that I really feel like God gave to me for you. And that always makes kind of a, a special formula when you feel like you're going someplace where you already kind of know the church and, and you know the leadership of the church, you know some of the direction of the church, and, and then you're able to step back and say, okay, what are those things that God is wanting to do next? And again, just looking at a lot of churches across the country, like this week we'll be with hundreds of churches across Illinois. I'm on my way to Illinois tonight to go and work with the Illinois Baptist State Association. And we'll meet with hundreds of churches and hundreds of pastors across that area and, and we'll just see and hear and understand all sorts of things, but we'll also see and hear and understand how God is wanting to work in the hearts of his people. And I really believe that this is a very special moment of time as we kind of come out of COVID and, and we kind of have a reorientation about what God's wanting to do in the church because a lot of the fluff and a lot of the programming and a lot of other stuff has just kind of gone to the wayside and we're really at a moment where the church has the opportunity to dial into its essence. And that's really what I want to talk to you about. And I, and I want Sunday night to be a special night. Not that we have to do Sunday night every night. I'm not trying to make it a sacred cow like that. But I can tell you that there were many occasions on a Sunday night when everything was just kind of stripped away about big church or Sunday morning or uh, the sense of everything just working right and being perfect. And there was just a sense of being honest and open and vulnerable before God that just allow God to work in some special ways in my life. I remember when Pastor Gene was preaching one particular night and I was sitting about two thirds of the way back and um, there's a guy named Mike Claudio sitting in the pew behind me and I just had a sense that God was doing something special and I just came to the altar that night and got on my knees and before long I saw Mike and he just put his arm around me and he began to pray with me and pray over me and it was just in that moment I think that God was really beginning to call me to a lifetime of ministry. And not that that's the call he wants on every person's life, but, but it just was one of those honest and open moments. And here's what I would ask you to do as you're in the room is just be open to an honest moment. I, I promise you, I'm not gonna manufacture anything or you know, some people may come and try to manipulate. I'm not gonna try, I'm just gonna try to talk to you about what the Bible says and ask you whether you're a young man or a young woman or a mature man or a mature woman, to just be honest before the Lord and say, God, are you wanting to work some fresh things in my life? Are you wanting me to respond again to the Lord? You know, because periodically the Lord just asks us to respond again, to say yes to him again. And I've been in some pretty unusual places when I've said yes to God again. Um, I was on Interstate 30 between Dallas and Fort Worth one night, overwhelmed by the sense of the presence of the Lord. And, and I remember just pulling off on the side of the road and opening my sunroof on my little Mazda 626. And I put my arms out the window in the best way I knew how. And I said, God, I don't know what it is, but I say yes to you again tonight. And that was a special moment in my life. I remember standing on top of the mountain in Caracas, Venezuela after a big crusade in a big soccer stadium there and, and tens of thousands of people indicated they gave their life to Christ. I stood on top of that mountain and I just lifted my hands to the Lord. And I said, Lord, I just say yes to you again. And, and I remember being in a difficult place in life, uh, holding my mom after she had passed away. And a lot of feelings and a lot of thoughts about all the places I'd been and all the times I'd not been home to do things. And I just said, Lord, I say yes to you again. 
And, and I don't know what your yes needs to be tonight, but God does. And he knows how to reach every single person through the power of his Holy Spirit with what needs to happen in your life. And we're just going to look at a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's, it, it's, it's Peter's kind of uh, throwdown passage on discipleship where he just takes us to the mountaintop of discipleship. And before we go there, I, I just want us to ask the Lord to bless this time of our study together. So would you pray with me tonight? God, we thank you that you are good all the time and that you pursue us even when there are times in our life when we're not pursuing you. And Lord, maybe tonight you've been pursuing some for a long time. Maybe you've been wanting to help somebody take their next step. Maybe you've been wanting someone to trust you as Savior. Maybe, maybe you've been wanting to deal with an issue in someone's life where they've been wayward or rebellious or maybe there's another step of maturity that you're wanting to take in that person's life. And Lord, we pray that tonight you would just show up, whatever that means, for every single person. That, that your sense of your spirit would be present and that your word would um, have an impact upon our life, that we would hear it, not just with, with our human ears, but with our spiritual ears, that we would see the words of scripture and, and that by your spirit's power, they would come alive. And, and Lord, we pray for the one that's downcast, that you'd lift them up. We pray for the one that's depressed, that you'd give them hope. We pray for the one that's anxious, that you'd give them peace. We pray for the one that feels alone, that you would make them know they're loved. And God, on and on that list could go as you pursue each and every one of us for what you desire to do tonight. But Lord, as we look at Peter's manifesto on discipleship tonight, we pray for every one of us that one of the six things that he says to us would lead to a place and a point of personal renewal in our lives such that we would walk out of here realizing that we've heard from God afresh and anew and that we're beginning a new season of our life as we walk in that freshness of your word being spoken to us. So God, have your way in this time together today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Um, I, I love watching BBC um, television. Anybody else watch BBC television? You, you, there's been some pretty good shows come out of late. And uh, I don't know that I'm a full-on Anglophile, you know, somebody that loves English culture, but I do find it interesting given that so much of our theology comes from there. And I love to go and visit the uh, English countryside and to be a part of kind of learning from their experiences and their history and whatever. I, I, I was watching a BBC interview one night and it was an old interview that was being replayed and the late Duke of Windsor, who for a short time was known as King Edward. He was the predecessor of Queen Elizabeth, who's reigning in England today. And uh, just uh, for a short period of time, he was the king. And prior to his death in Paris, where he kind of lived in exile in 1972, BBC did an interview uh, with the king. And he revealed how hard his father at times was on him, preparing him to be the king of England. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a young boy and have your dad be the king and, and him to be training you to be king over the most extended version of the English empire, all the expectations, all the sense of responsibility, all the duties that he would have uh, to perform. And he was known to be a really strict disciplinarian, the late Duke said. And he said, but there was one quote in his entire interview that just stuck with me about the topic we're going to study tonight. He said this, 
He, he said my dad would often speak to me and say to me, quote, my dear child, you must always remember who you are. If you will just remember who you are, you will always behave accordingly. You know, as the children of God, the Bible tells us who we are, that we're the children of the most high God, that, that we are the chosen people of God, that we are a, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we have been chosen by God for this special blessing. And yet for many people, they're wrestling in these days and times how to live out the Christian life. What does it look like? What does it mean? Uh, how am I supposed to behave? How am I supposed to live? Where am I supposed to place my priorities? And I think the reality is that Today, there are many, many, far too many Christians and far too many churches that, that understand a, what I might call a soft idea of discipleship, that they might be defined as a misguided church, and they might really be struggling within their generation with competing agendas about what real Christianity is all about. Now, let me just unpack that for a minute. There are a lot of soft disciples today in the church They've lost their conviction about what the Bible says and about what Jesus has taught us. They claim to measure up to God's standards of behavior like the king was putting in front of his son. They, they claim to be a Christian, but they, they really aren't pursuing what it means to follow after Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And there are a lot of misguided churches who think they're on God's team, think they're doing God's work, and they're doing all the things in the world that could possibly be imagined but they're not really doing the one thing that Jesus declares to be the most important. And then, of course, there's generations of people that think Christianity is about one thing or another. And there's competing agendas among our generations of those who call themselves Christians. And in a multi-generational church, the church is torn this way and torn that way and torn the other way. All laying claim to what authentic Christianity is while most are completely missing the mark. Now here, let me ask you the question today. What is the one main purpose and priority of the Christian faith? What is that? Now, there'll be a lot of people that'll tell you a lot of different things. Some people say, well, oh, it's, it's politics. Or there'll be some people that'll tell you, oh, it's racial reconciliation. Or some people say, hey, it's economic or it's prophetic or it's changed the world or it's some subtopic within our Christian faith, marriage and family or uh, adoption or benevolent behavior or ordering your financial world and on and on the list would go. And I'm not saying that not every one of these may have an, an opportunity to have an outlet within our Christian faith when we're rightly placed, but I'm saying to you, that none of those are the one thing that Jesus gave to the church to be our first priority. Jesus was a master of using the human language to communicate. One of the ways he communicated with us was by using hyperbole. Hyperbole is simply exaggeration. And Jesus would exaggerate often like a camel passing through the eye of the needle. What's he doing? He's using hyperbole to, to make a case for something. Listen to the hyperbolic statement that Jesus makes about the issue of discipleship. If anyone comes to me, Luke 14, 26 says, and does not hate 
his father and mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's pretty profound, isn't it? I mean, that's an astounding statement that Jesus would say, okay, let me tell you how important it is this focus upon making disciples that is within this great commission that Christ has given us. Let me, let me press upon you how important it really is. How important is it? Unless you hate your father and mother in comparison to your love for the disciple-making work that Jesus is seeking to accomplish in every individual believer's life, you're not really seeing how important this disciple-making work is. Now, it, it may not seem that impressive to you either from where you're sitting. Let me try to make the case for you about how important this work of disciple-making really is. If you go back and look at what I might call the three salvific pinnacles in all the Bible, the greatest statements about justification, the greatest statements about sanctification, and the greatest statement about glorification, you would probably eventually come, if not start, with Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.18 and 1 John 3.2. And the reason you would start there because, is because you would find that God is working in the Trinity, God the Father in Romans 8.29, God the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and Jesus the Son in 1 John 3 verse 2. You'll see the Godhead working in the past, the Godhead working in the present, and the Godhead working in the future. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working past, present, and future to accomplish your salvation. But it's the theme of those passages that I want to draw your attention to. You can turn there if you'd like or just write down these verses and look at them later tonight or sometime during the week because you're going to find them among the greatest passages in all the Bible about salvation but also the importance of the disciple-making work that Jesus wants to accomplish within you. Start with Romans 8.29. Most of us never get to Romans 8.29 because we stop at Romans 8.28 when it talks to us about pain and suffering. How many of us have not quoted to someone or quoted to ourselves that all things work together for the glory of God, for those who are called according to his purpose, right? And so we step back and we say that. But here's the thing, Paul fills in what that purpose is in verse 29, and here's what he says. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, you probably didn't even hear it. You see, we're so trained to think of that passage as a passage about election and predestination. We wrestle over the arguments of our day and time and we miss how the Bible has structured the primary point of what that passage is about. And the primary point of what that passage is about is to become conformed to the image of his son. You see, that passage talks about the eternal work of God the Father in the past to save you. And the picture of salvation that he gives is so that you might look like Jesus. Now, think about this, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Some translations call that day by day into his glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Did you hear the phrase again? 
being transformed into his likeness. So every day, if you're a follower of Jesus, every single day, the Spirit of God is working to bring you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. When you're sitting in traffic on 440 and you're feeling sanctified, the Holy Spirit wants to be working there, right? When you're dealing with the school-related issues for your children or the family challenges for your multi-generation family or the financial challenges and realities, the Bible says every day the Holy Spirit is working to form and fashion you day by day into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now get this, 1 John 3, verse 2. Brothers, it's in the vocative. He's not excluding you ladies. The idea is brothers and sisters. He's talking about all of us. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed, he tells us. And so what does he tell us? Beloved, we are the children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. But we know this, when he appears, we shall be like him. Now think about this. If God the Father in eternity past and God the Spirit day by day and Jesus one day is going to let you share in his glory of his resurrected body and that's what glorification ultimately means. If this is the past, present and future work of God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to accomplish justification, sanctification, glorification, don't you think that the most important work of all in your life is that you would look like Jesus Christ? Now listen, you may have totally gotten that in church. I didn't. I went to a great church. I had a great pastor preaching the Bible to me every day. I heard it for years I went to some of the greatest churches you could ever imagine when I was in seminary. I heard the greatest preachers you could ever hear. I studied in the biggest theological seminary in the world. I was the president of FCA in my high school and college. I, I was a part of crew and shared the gospel with others. I went on mission trips. I served as a pastor for two churches before it hit me one day that I was missing the fact that Jesus wanted to form himself within me and live his life through me. You see, all the other voices were so loud out there in culture. All the other agendas in church were so strong and so great. Everybody wanted to harness the potential of the local church for every agenda that they had. And listen to this, my greatest confession of all is that my flesh cried out to blame somebody else for everything else. But I never stopped and realized that it was about having Jesus formed in me. And you just go through the fruits of the spirit and you see how you're doing. Love, joy, and peace the fruits of the spirit of a relationship with God? Do you feel loved, deeply loved by God? Do you have a sense of abiding joy that even like Paul said in the second half of chapter one of Philippians, that when you're living on the dark side of joy and things are hard, that you still have this reservoir of, of real joy in Jesus beyond the happiness of happenings in your life. And you realize there's a reservoir of hope that springs up within you that is eternal. Do you have a sense of peace that it is well with my soul? Like Horatio Alger wrote about 
after he lost his wife and his children, and he still said, there is joy in my heart. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Does that exhibit itself in your human relationships with others? That you are patient with others, that you are kind with others, that there is a sense of goodness that flows out of your heart, that there's a vitality relationally that you share with others. And then, of course, you've got uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control within your own character makeup, your relationship with yourself, faithfulness, that you're stewarding well the gifts and talents and callings that God has given you. Uh, That you have um, a sense of gentleness or meekness where your strengths and your passions are brought under Jesus' control. And then finally, self-control, that when the whole world seems to be going mad to feed itself on the pleasures of this world, that you have the self-control and the spiritual control to say, I'm gonna restrain myself from those things and I'm gonna give myself to something that is holy and completely better. I'm gonna save myself to give myself to Jesus. See, there's the measuring rod for us of true spiritual transformation. And here's what I discovered as I looked at many of those things is that, yeah, I was measuring up and that people wanted me to be their pastor. And I was measuring up and people looked at me and said, hey, he's a pretty good guy. And yet on the inside, I knew that I wasn't near the man that Jesus wanted me to be because I thought it was about all this other stuff. And I missed that the Christian life is first and foremost about letting Jesus be formed in you. And so for the next 20 years, a sweet man named Fred Day began to disciple me in our church. And he began to teach me what it was to just let Jesus flow out of your heart and of your life. And you see, when we we understand that's what discipleship is really about, is becoming like Jesus, then there is such a powerful thing that God begins to do. Now, that's what Peter writes about. And let's look at what he says here. Notice how he describes it. We're gonna look in just a few verses to capture six pictures. And then I just want you to uh, look quickly up on each one of these snapshots. Uh, the first picture that he gives us is that of a baby. I was walking in with a couple who have a nine-month-old little baby. And we were talking about how cute that little face is and uh, about how much fun it is when they begin to talk and communicate with you. Well, that's the first picture that Peter invites us into. Who doesn't want to look at the face of a beautiful newborn baby. And here's what he says. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and evil and slander, like newborn babies, long for pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in respect to salvation. Look look down in verse four. Here's the next image that he gives us. And coming to him is a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. Look down at the end of verse five. He gives us another image. For a holy priesthood. You're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. He picks up that idea a little later down in verse nine when he says, There, you are a royal priesthood. Notice down in verse nine, he gives us another image. He talks to us about us being a tribe of people, a chosen race, really a people for God's own possession. There's another analogy that he gives to us of what it is to be a disciple. 
And then notice in verse 11, he tells us something else. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. And then finally, in verse 13 and verse 18, he talks to us about being a servant who's willing to submit and a servant who's willing to suffer. This is the final image that he gives us, that you would submit yourself to the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether a king has one in authority or governors who is sent by him. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with respect, for this is the spiritual work that you're truly doing unto the Lord. Look at the final phrase there in verse 25. Here's how important it is to Jesus. Jesus says, or Peter says of Jesus, that this is the work that Jesus is doing as your great shepherd and your great overseer. It's the word episkopos. It's two of the word, two of the three words that are given to a pastor, elder, shepherd, and overseer. And here it's used of Jesus. And and here's how important that work is in your life that these six things happen, that Jesus is supervising this in your life, that Jesus is overseeing this, Jesus is shepherding this in your life. John Stott, a well-known theologian from London said this, this is the single most important passage on discipleship in all the New Testament. So let's take just a moment and look at each of these images. Would you do that with me tonight? A baby that's growing. In verse 23 of chapter one, if you just look back at the previous chapter, he says, you're born again of the seed of the word of God. If you remember how the gospel of John is introduced, verse 13 says, we are born not of blood nor of the will of man, but born of God. In other words, the word of God is heard. We respond to that word of God. And the first thing that we're doing is to be a newborn babe that is to be growing up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one thing that is highlighted is the most powerful thing, the thing that that baby needs most is the pure spiritual milk. But get this, it's the logikai. Do you hear the word logic in there? It's the word logikai. It means the reasonable word of the Lord. Can I tell you what the most important thing is? that God has put in your hand when it comes to your disciple making, it is the word of God. Survey after survey of Lifeway right here in Nashville, Tennessee says that the single thing that changes an individual Christian's life the most is if they are in the word of God, regularly letting God speak to them. Above all the other disciplines, young man, I would say to you, pick up your Bible and read. My son, not to put him on a pedestal, he certainly has many things that the Lord's working and correcting on in his life. But as a dad, I'll brag on him in one area. I'll ask him periodically, John, are you reading your Bible? He's got a little FCA coach's Bible and I can see it in different places in his room when he goes or in his backpack when he goes to school or there with his stuff at baseball. And he's in the word. Hey, it's not always pretty being the dad of a 16-year-old boy. There's lots to correct. There's lots of challenges to deal with. But here's the one thing I know, that when the word of God is entering into his heart, there is going to be the productive seed of the word of God that is eventually going to bear its harvest. And it'll do the same thing in you too. You never outgrow that. You see, friend, tomorrow morning, I don't, I'm not gonna put in front of you, uh, like a lady yesterday was telling me, yes, I get up in the morning, I spend four hours in the Word, and I go, well, I don't have time to do that. I'm so glad that you do. But I get up in the morning, and I just hear my wife getting ready for school real early in the morning, and I hear her app on her phone running, and it's the Word of God 
being read to her as she's getting ready to start her day. I get up and I read systematically through the Bible. Why? Because the word of God is powerful. It builds us up. It doesn't leave us weak. And, and, and you see, this doesn't just happen. This discipleship work just doesn't happen instantly or quickly. I was um, talking to some of my Russian friends and, and um, of course there's a lot in the news about Russia right now and it's not good, but this was a while back and we do some work in Russia and when I was over there, they asked me, hey, do you know this Russian comedian named uh, Yakov Smirnoff. And I said, oh yeah, we know him very, very well. And, and I said, oh, I know his favorite joke about America. And they said, oh, tell us what his favorite joke is about America. And here's his favorite joke about America. He said, I love America because everything is instant. He said, I, I, I went to the grocery store and I was walking around and we don't have a grocery store like this in Russia because we don't have food on the shelves in Russia. And, and he said, um, so I, I walked down the aisle and I saw that there was instant powdered milk. All you have to do is add water and you have milk. And he said, wow, what a country. And then he walked a little further and he found some powdered eggs and, and he said, just add water and pow, you've got eggs. He said, wow, what a country. He said, I went over to the baby aisle and I saw their baby powder and I thought, wow, what a country. <laughs> and you know, that's the way we think that growing up as a Christian is going to be is it's instant. It's not. You know, what Fred said to me was, he said, Pastor, you need to remember that growth in the Christian life is not a straight line. He said, there are moments of up and moments of down. And can I tell you what I've learned in walking those ups and downs is, is that the downs are just as important as the ups. Because in the ups, I learn what I'm good at, what I love, where I flourish, where passion and joy and excitement is, and that's all great. But you know, in the downs, what I learn is the character that I need to live the real Christian life through both the mountaintops and the valleys. And you may have been through some of the valleys. I mean, let's be honest, COVID has not been easy for most Christians and most families and most churches. And maybe there's some downs, but maybe the greatest lessons that God builds upon in your life and in mine were the lessons we learned in the downs where the character of Christ's likeness was formed and he's planning to build you up and bless you through the character lessons of Christ's likeness that you learned when you were down. There's another image that he gives us. The stone. A disciple's a stone that's linked within God's building. So he goes from the maternity ward to the construction site, from biology to uh, architecture. And I think this meant a lot to Peter because remember at Caesarea Philippi, he was called Little Stone. And I don't think Peter liked little anything. I got a few friends like him in the ministry. They're just kind of big, strong, capable men. And uh, Peter was one of those guys. And I don't think he necessarily liked being called Little Stone. But he learned and later obviously used this idea to communicate one of the most important spiritual lessons. The Bible says like multiple stones, there's a cornerstone, a chief cornerstone, and we're all placed in that building, in that house. And God is building this indestructible, eternal building called his church. And your life is linked within it. You know, during COVID, there've been a lot of people that have been lost from the church. But the Bible says that if you are a Christian, you are a part of the church, whether you like it, recognize it, realize it, or want it or not. You're part of the church. And the Bible says that we're linked together. 
When I was at the church where Pastor Gene was preaching, where Jeff grew up, we went on a mission trip. It's the first mission trip I ever went on. We went to Mexico and Pastor David was there. And uh, if, if Pastor Gene was here, I know he'd smile when he heard David's name because I know he brought him to church and introduced him to our church in Tennessee uh, later on after many years had passed. And, and I remember being in the hole that was being dug with Pastor David. And, and as I was in that hole with him, we were building a cistern to hold water for the dry seasons in Mexico so that the church would have water for its baptistry and for all of its fellowships and all these other things. And I remember that as we were uh, digging that hole, uh, he, he said something, he kept saying something to me, coma la iglesia, coma la iglesia, coma la iglesia. And, and I was wrestling with the Spanish on that. He said, like the church, like the church. You see, what we were doing is we had dug out a hole and then we began to lay stones. We had Mesca and Lidra and the bricks and the stones and the mortar all began to take shape. And before long, there was this great wall and there was this circular place. And, and come along, Glacia, it's like the church. And when I finally realized what he was saying, somebody kind of helped me, Bangui, and helped me understand what he was saying. He said, no, it's like the church. You see, I think sometimes we forget as disciples, it's like the church. It doesn't have to be the biggest, doesn't have to be the brightest, doesn't have to be the boldest. But it's gotta be like the church, built stone upon stone. Look at the third thing that he says. Like holy priest, a royal priesthood. What was it about the priest that he identified? Here's what he was identifying. That the priesthood had access to God in a proximity to the sacred. You see, the priest was the one that got to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. The high priest got to go in there. And, and the priest would cast lots to see who would go into the holy place and offer the incense. And what Peter is saying is, you're like a holy priest. No longer does the nation just have a priest. Now we are all priests in this work. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are a priest in the work that God is doing. He wants to do his work through you. You have access to God. Maybe the most famous passage in all the Bible about Access to God is in Romans chapter five, where Paul would write to us, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we've been granted access into that faith. Did you know that? You, you've been granted this amazing access that before for religious people, they couldn't approach, they couldn't come near, they didn't have access, they, they couldn't be the dispensers of it. And now God gives you a special place on the team to be a part of those who distribute the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truths of God being salt and light to the whole world, to your world. You have that joy and you have that privilege. Years ago, a friend of mine named Carmen, uh, who's pretty well connected in Florida, he said, would you like some, some tournament passes um, to the uh, Sawgrass Golf Tournament, PGA Golf Tournament there in Jacksonville? I said, man, I'd love some. Can I get one for my son too? And he, he said, yes. And he gave them to me and John and I made our way up to Sawgrass. And when we got there, there was just, seemed like hundreds of thousands of people. And I thought, well, we'll just be on the fringes. But when I got to the gate, I noticed something at the bottom of her pass. It said all access. So when I got up to the gate, there were probably an hour's worth of people lined up in the queue to get into the tournament. But over here on the side, there's a little sign that said all access. We walked in, showed our pass, went straight to the tournament. We got to hole number 17, the famous water hole, the, the little island green and Rory McElroy was walking up to it. My son was wanting to watch him more than anyone else. And 
yet the stands were just completely full. We, we walked up and the guy said, oh, I'm sorry, there's, there's just not room. And then he looked at my ticket and he said, oh, I'm sorry, you've got all access. He took me down to the front row and put us on the front row right there in front of where this professional golfer that my son wanted to see, and he got to see him. Later that day, we went to the clubhouse and, and there was a little store that everybody else could go to. And then there was a clubhouse store. And when the guy looked at our tag, it said, all access. He said, come on in. He said, and don't forget that tonight, that all access pass, you get to eat dinner with the golfing families in the dining room at the clubhouse. I said, all access. Can I tell you what God's done for you? It's all access. You are the priest and the priestesses of God. Oh, what a special blessing that is bestowed upon us that God lets us look at the sacrifice. And that's why he says to us that in this all access that we have, now we are to be the living sacrifices. Is that the way you're living right now as a living sacrifice for God? Look at the last three so quickly with me. A disciple's a chosen person who represents God. He says, a people for God's own possession. There's an old country song that says, do you know where your, where, where your people are? Do you know where your people are? And the idea is you may not always be able to be with them, but you always know where they are. And part of the song even says, you know where they're buried in the graveyard. You know where they are. Do you know what God says about you as the children of God? He says, you are his people. He knows where you are and, and you are his tribe. And, and when you read about the blessings and the benefits of what he's gonna do with his tribe, as a matter of fact, he says the final scene, the great vision of the Bible is that God doesn't just want followers. He wants you to be his family and he's inviting you to the greatest family reunion ever lived and ever hoped for and ever dreamed about the family reunion in heaven. Revelation 7, verse nine through 11, a people from every nation, every language, every tribe, he invites us there. And then at that place, he wipes away every tear, heals every hurt, overcomes every sorrow. Oh, what a privilege discipleship has. A disciple look next is a place to belong. We hear a lot about aliens and strangers. We really don't know what that means from a Bible standpoint. I looked it up last week. An alien indicates that you're a person that has no rights. In the Bible, a stranger is a person who doesn't have a home. And you may feel in this world like you don't have the rights and privileges, you don't have a home, but the Bible says that he has given that to you. And we may have been kicked out of the garden because of the sinfulness of the world. And, and, and as one author said it, we may live east of Eden in the sense of our lostness and our brokenness and our hurt. But the Bible says God throws the doors open and says, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. And that's what it means to be a disciple. It means we have a home. We have a place to belong temporarily on earth with the church that we're a part of, but eternally forever with God's people. See how privileged we are. <clears throat> Here's the last image that he gives us and I'll close with this. A disciple is a servant of God who has a purpose. He reminds us repeatedly, verse 13, verse 18, verse 21, that we're servants. But you know, throughout the entire book of 1 Peter, he talks to us about the purpose that God has for us, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, 
But five times he talks to us about the purposes of God. And he says to us that we are called for this purpose, that, that God makes us a servant. And today he wants to use you in his kingdom's work. And that's a part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now just go back over the list with me for a moment. A newborn baby that's responsible to grow. A living stone with the responsibility to fellowship with other believers. A holy priest who has access to God. A people who have the privilege to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A foreigner who really is a citizen and a servant who understands his king's purpose. That's the portrait that Peter gives us of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Years ago, when I worked on the staff at First Baptist Dallas, Charles Swindoll had just been called as the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he'd come over, it's just maybe a few blocks away, and he'd come over and meet in the pastor's office. And I, I would talk with him often. I remember one conversation, especially poignant, that he had with me. Uh, we were talking a little bit about the importance of balance in the Christian life. And, and he said to me this, he said, well, Rob, just remember there are always two words on every page of the Bible. They're always there, but the words are never used. I had my attention. So I bit and I said, okay, Dr. Swindoll, what are those two words? He said the words Trinity and the word balance. Let me show you something about what we just looked at. Notice the application and the tension that's kind of created here. Disciples who are called to individual discipleship, but who are also called to corporate worship. Disciples who are about worshiping God, but also witnessing for Jesus. Disciples who are pilgrims in this world, but citizens in heaven. Do you see how majestically Peter knits all of this together as an ordinary man who was unlearned and yet in the beauty of scripture, the word and the work of God describing for us what Jesus wants to do in me and in you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? Is there one of these images that maybe you would step back and say, more than any of the others, that image is just not being fully lived out in my life. Maybe you're not growing the way God wants you to be growing spiritually. Maybe when it comes to the church, you're not in fellowship the way God has designed for you to be. Maybe you're not present as much or as regular as you need to be to grow spiritually and grow in fellowship with other believers. Maybe as a priest, you're not enjoying the privileges that God has given to you as a distinct child of God that is loved by your heavenly father. Maybe you're not receiving that love that God is pouring out upon you. Maybe it's in your witnessing. Maybe it's just in telling others of the blessings and the goodness of being a child of God. And maybe those words had not been coming out of your mouth like they should. Maybe you've just gotten too comfortable in the world 
and you're not living as a foreigner and a stranger in this land, knowing that your citizenship really is in heaven. Maybe it's in serving. Maybe there's just been so many other things going on that serving through the ministry of the church and in the work of the kingdom has just gotten pushed to the side. Listen, here's what I know. God uses every one of those six aspects of what it means to be a disciple to help you grow into fully everything Jesus wants you to be as his child. And today he doesn't want to be punitive with you in these moments. He wants to be running after you as we sang earlier. That song was designed with God's intended plan for tonight that he's running after you because it's not what he wants from you. It's what he wants for you. And he knows you're living beneath what it means to be his child and his disciple. And so I want to invite you just to make an altar right where you are. Not going to ask you to raise a hand. Not going to ask you to come forward. Not going to ask you to get on the, the altar here. I'm just going to ask you to make an altar right where you are. And say, God, is there one or two of those images of a disciple that you long for me to grow in? That you want something more for me than what I want for myself? And then would you just spend a moment talking with God about it as the music plays? I'll give us just a moment to spend with the Lord before I close us. God, you're hearing all of our prayers in these moments. And you know how by the strength and reliability of your word and by the wisdom and discernment of your spirit to lead us towards that next step tomorrow, perhaps of what we've just committed to you. Lord, I pray that more than anything else of all the words that have been heard, that there is just an inspired vision of more in the Christian life, of better in the Christian life, of what you originally designed the Christian life to be as we follow after Jesus in his likeness. Lord, I pray for every commitment that's been made, every next step that is being considered. And Lord, that your spirit and your word would empower it so that we might be more like Jesus than we have ever been before. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.